0: Hello, everyone. It's Jay here, reminding you that you can get all of your fine art supplies needs met at trekkel.com. T-R-E-K-E-L-L dot com. One K and two L's gets you everything you need. Brushes, painting supplies, shapes to paint on, canvases, all kinds of things. Those little spatules, you know,
1: spacklers. Spac- T R E K E L L
2: 1 K M 2 L
1: 1 K double L I think it's fabulous fabulous fabulous
3: So,
0: Robert, you're in you're in Athens, right? I am. Yes. How did how so I mean, if people don't know, I know. Wait, you, let's get started.
1: Uh, Welcome to yeah, Suggest donation. I'm Edward Minoff. Uh, I'm Tony Sarani. And we are joined by sculptor, teacher and the director of the Athens Sculpture Atelier, Robert Bodum.
2: Hello, everybody. Hey, Robert.
1: <laughs> Robert, I
0: don't know if we've actually ever met in person. I've I've admired no, we your haven't. work. I've admired your work because I remember seeing it. I want to say, I want to say the first time I think I saw your work was at, was it at Grenning Gallery, Laura Grenning Gallery in Zach yeah, Harbor? It must have been. Yeah. It must have been there because uh, I remember, I just remember seeing it and it was just like, wow, who, who's this guy? This guy's awesome. And then Ted um, was like, oh, no, that's Robert. He's, he's, yeah, no, he's a regular guy. <laughs> he's an that American
3: guy. guy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But you were so I know you're in Athens now, but um, if we back up a little bit, uh, you're an you're you were you are were an American living in Europe. How did how did that happen?
2: Well, um, I've had a relationship with Daniel Graves. Um, He's from Rochester, New York, and I knew his son and knew his family um, from when I was six years old. Uh, And. I was always involved in the arts, although my art when I was in university was I was pursuing abstraction. Uh-huh. I wasn't I wasn't making I was doing figurative work because there were figurative classes, but my main pursuit was um, abstraction.
0: And were you in Rochester? Rochester?
2: Were you in Rochester as well? Well, this was at Boston University when oh, I was Boston? going to university. And were you okay. doing
1: abstract sculpture or for yeah. painting?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah, I was doing abstract sculpture. Um so but I knew my abstractions were coming from my work within the figurative room because they're often quite gestural. So I knew Daniel Graves was running this academy in Florence. And I took a year off in between when I was about to go get my master's degree and went and studied uh, with Daniel. And from that year, I totally changed my it totally changed my outlook and direction with with the arts. And I wanted to go and focus exclusively on the human figure. So I've had a long relationship with Daniel that kind of weaved together when I was a college student. And then I went and actually um, went to Florence Academy of Art for one year um, in 1996. And there wasn't much of a sculpture program there. There was a sculptor who was trained at the New York Academy, Sestin de Cosimo. Um, so I was doing I was sculpting half a day and I was drawing half a day. and I was learning a lot in the drawing room and I was learning a lot about um, finally someone telling me about how to pace myself through my work. Instead of what I was being told at Boston University, which is just kind of like make whatever you want and, you know, there's no standard, <laughs> you know, everything's kind of great, you know, high five. Um, and it's a funny thing because, you know, I gravitated towards abstraction because it was a lot more satisfying um, in that, you know, I when I was looking at a model in a model room in Boston, I could see the qualities that I wanted to create that the harmonies that I was interested in, but it wasn't sort of the goal of the teacher. So they would come by and they go, oh, okay, great job. You know, next, next week, bring in a bigger easel and make it bigger. And uh, you know, I'd be looking at my drawing going, okay, well, I just got, you know, recognized for doing a good job, but you know, I'm looking at it and I'm not satisfied at all because I didn't get any of these qualities that I was hoping to. Um, and, you know, I was 18 years old. I didn't know the questions to ask. And then when I finally like went and worked with Daniel in Florence, like he told me where I was in the drawing. He told me how to um like locate these qualities that have always eluded me on paper. And you know throughout that year, I kind of developed a better understanding of drawing, and I was getting better at it. And I think for the first time, like instead of looking at a piece of paper and seeing charcoal on it, I saw a piece of paper with a figure on it. or I didn't even see a piece of paper. Like you kind of transformed the the material.
1: Like you're and reaching into ex- it,
2: yeah. That like just excited me so much that uh, I said, "This is what I want to do as a sculptor." You know, I want to make clay, clay plaster, or or bronze, and I want people to suspend belief that it's a different material, mm-hmm. thinking it could wake up. So then I went back to Boston University and got my MFA and and dedicated myself to the study of figurative sculpture. And at that when point, you, when- a few, like.
0: When you went back to Boston University after being in Florence, were the teachers who knew you like, whoa, what is it? Because you were saying that you came. <clears throat> well, from, no, you, not really, actually, at because, you know,
2: this is this is one of these programs that didn't really know what it wanted to be in that you had this faculty that was sort of figurative based. And then you had faculty that was conceptual based. So. You know, you got this different advices from different people and, you know, they're trying to encourage you to move in different directions, like you're being pushed and pulled all over the place. And, um, but I went back to study, you know, with a specific woman, Isabel Shedd, who I knew could, could try, who could help me um, do or help me understand what I wanted to do with the figure and sculpture. So it was really one woman who I went to, wanted to go study with, uh, even though I got input from all the faculty there. So anyway, so I, you know, spent 2 years getting my MFA and then I still didn't know what I was going to be doing. I thought like so many artists, I think I was going to wind up in my parents' garage, um, you know, making sculpture. <laughs> uh, but I did I wrote a fax to Daniel and I said, "Listen Daniel, I've got like nothing holding me here and I've got uh, you know, this is the work I've been doing, this is my graduate work and I know you've always had a passion for sculpture and you don't have a sculpture program, so Um, If you're interested in in developing a sculpture program, I'm ready. And, you know, what Daniel did, he had a board of directors that was responsible for the school. And I remember he called them and they weren't into it. They didn't want the Florence Academy of Art to expand because it was in a financially precarious situation. And they thought it was a bad idea to expand. Um, And I think Daniel fired them all. Like and Daniel's, like, no, we're going to do a sculpture program. Like Slaughter at the board and and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to make room for you. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, St. Valentine's so Day massacre. <laughs> yeah. He was so dedicated to the principal. And so I flew over there and moved my whole life over there and uh, started the sculpture program there in 1998. It was when I landed. Wow. Yep. So and then you've been that's teaching. That's how I got there. <laughs> and you've been teaching point, ever since,
1: like nonstop. The what? I'm sorry. You've been teaching nonstop ever since. Yeah,
2: you know, I always wanted to be a teacher. Uh, The reason I do what I do today is because I've had very uh, a very positive influence with with teachers, even dating back to high school. And I can credit them with I don't think I'd be doing what I was doing today unless I had these teachers. So they're a big influence on me. They helped me out a lot. They encouraged me. Uh, And you know, I felt that you know that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a high school art teacher, actually. Mm-hmm. And I went to college initially to uh, one that had an educational sort of degree that I could take so I could become a high school art teacher. And when I was in my first year there at Nazareth College in Rochester, I was doing some, some you know, studio work and I had a critique with one of the teachers and she asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, well, you know, I want to be a high school art teacher. And she looked at my work and she said, forget about that. And I was like, what? You know, I think it's kind of a, a pretty good idea. <laughs> She <laughs> no, no. She goes, you want to be an artist. Go become an artist. Um, don't, you know, don't set your standards on being a high school art teacher. And she asked me to, to transfer out of Nazareth College. She said, you should leave this school and you should go become an artist. And I looked into schools that were more rooted in more studio work. And that's when I found Boston University. And so I transferred out of Nazareth College and I then focused on becoming an artist and I think they just equate, you know, like high school art teachers are like, you know, teaching full time. They don't have much time to dedicate to their own work. Oh, yeah. uh, so, you know, maybe their careers artistically, you know, uh, I hate to say this because if high school art teachers out there are listening to this, they're going to hate me. But uh, maybe <laughs> they don't have much of an art career.
1: Well, um, but y- maybe- you know, the, the difference between the kind of teaching that you do or that we all do, I think, and. The, I mean, because I do teach in college, and you know it's it's probably not that different from high school in that uh, you're you're teaching in a class and that class is really finite. And at the end of the semester, they're on to a different class. and it's not like there's not a continuation, there's not like a, a one line that you're like following through with somebody. And I think that one of the things that the Ateliers do, I think, really successfully, hopefully, is is guide a student through kind of some sort of a linear progression where they're learning a whole bunch of things that all fit together and each piece is introduced at, at a yeah. certain time.
2: Yeah. No, I think it's the Atelier method, I think, changed a lot about not only the type of work that we do and we want to pursue. Uh, you know, when I was starting a sculpture program, I was like confronted with this idea that, wow, my students are going to sculpt and draw like all day, every day. I mean, that wasn't my experience right. you know, in college, you know, I couldn't sculpt and draw every yeah. day. So anyway, it was <laughs> I don't just think like mind-boggling. Said that in college. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think, and, you know, you gotta be really, you know, when one chooses to go to an Academy, they gotta be really dedicated to that principle. Um, because it is very unique that you do one, you know, you're doing one activity and it's on a linear progression that you're, you're skill building along the way and, and, you know, getting better at, at what you do. And, uh, at the end, it's supposed to work out to that you're, you know, sort of the mastery of the medium that you're hoping to accomplish. Uh, so yeah, you can go so back to your like parents' there's... garage. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> so when you went
0: over to um, to Florence after talking with Daniel and you were like, you know, I'll help create this brand new sculpture program after the bloodbath of getting rid of the, uh, of <laughs> the, the board.
3: board. The uh, massacre. The massacre. <laughs>
0: Um, how, at that point, how did you know, or did you have an idea of what not only teaching would be like, but creating a program? I mean, that sounds pretty ambitious.
2: No. No, And I think back on it, I've been part of, uh, some, I was interviewing some people for a job as a, as a sculpture instructor recently. And I kind of kept thinking back on like what it was like for me to begin the program. And one of the advantages I think I had is because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't come there with an ego about um, knowing everything. And so I realized I had a lot to learn. Maybe I didn't articulate that, that to the students I was teaching at the time, but I was I was a very close observer of what was occurring in the program and how my teaching was affecting the students. And if it was affecting them negatively or if it wasn't reaching them, I was pretty quick to adapt to. Um, Uh, and make changes to things. Uh, So I I didn't have it all figured out. And so it was a big learning process for me in the beginning. And I remember in like the first summer course I got, I remember this, I, you know, I was 28 years old and I had a guy from PATHA come in and PATHA at the time was, had a very strong program in sculpture. And the guy showed up to the school a few days before the course started. And he was like, yeah, I just want to work, come by and say, hello, is there something I could do? And I was like, oh yeah, you know, here's an armature, you know, go back and make an, a, an imaginary figure. Like, so I didn't have a model for him or anything. And he went back into a studio and worked. And I went back there like two hours later and he like put together this like phenomenal figure from imagination. <laughs> and I was looking at it going, oh my God, like, what am I going to teach this guy over the next month? <laughs> like, So there was a lot of humility as in the onset of this. And, uh, once again, I think that was quite helpful um, in not saying that you know I have an ego. I know what I'm talking about. Do this. Never, never pivot. Never mm-hmm. alter sort of how you're approaching things. And and I and maybe my students, if they're listening to this from back in the early days of the Florence Academy of Art, they felt I was quite strict. But um, I was quite strict about the goals that we were working towards. Uh, and there was a method that you know I was sort of instituting, although it was quite crude compared to what I'm teaching today. And uh, the, but yeah, it, the the development of the program and the curriculum changed and changed and changed over the years. Is it still uh, changing? And it got better and better. Yeah, it's definitely still changing. Yeah. You know, I told you I'm writing this book with a co-author, and it's been going on for five years. And like every time I teach a course, I'm like writing <laughs> her going. Hey, you know, chapter seven, uh, you know, but, <laughs> we're to you know, have to scrap it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm so I'm still, you know, I'm always trying to, like, find new ways to reach people. And I think anyone that's been an educator for long enough knows that, you know, there's kind of standard ways in which you might uh, try to get an idea sunk, you know, into a student's head, uh, but it doesn't always work. And you got to kind of approach them from different ways and talk about, you know, maybe the same goal, but from a different direction. Uh, I
1: I also find that like um, with my own work, just as it evolves, the things that I'm interested in talking about with students changes. And so the, the, the whole approach to teaching for me is constantly changing as I'm kind of reassessing how I'm working and what I'm interested oh, definitely. in working on.
2: Definitely. And that happened to me in a lot of, I think, questions that I was getting, you know, 15 years ago when I was director of the program was, you know, does teaching get in the way of your work? And I was like, well, actually, you know, teaching is helpful for my work because when you go on and give like, you know, 40 critiques a week, you know, you're helping students problem solve through things that may not even be a problem that you've even encountered. Yeah. you yeah. Oh, yeah. know, And then all of a sudden you're in the studio going, holy Jesus, well, I just worked through this with a student. And then you have a better way in which to, you know, work it out in your studio or faster, but also, you know, you have needs for your own work and what you're hoping it can become. And that might mean reaching out of your own comfort zone. And as you do that, and as you successfully, you know, put something together in a bit of a different way or with, Um, you can, you bring that back into the studio and then that becomes something you're offering your students how to take things to a higher level. And I can talk about the, you know, over the years in Florence, like in the beginning, you know, we were, I was a sculptor already work, you know, working, trying to start a program in a world-class painting program, you know, and, you know, the people that were working there at the time were just doing phenomenal work. And, uh, you know, so that was another like humbling thing. Right. So, (laughs) uh, the, the idea was, you know, I want to get the quality of the work up to the standards that the Florence Academy of Art has already set with the painting and drawing program. So there was a goal for me that, you know, we were trying to push towards that. Uh, and so it was quite stringent, uh, I think, in the beginning, because, you know, site size and, you know, you know pencil width proportional, you know, things that were wrong were part of sort of what I was critiquing about. But I kind of let all that go now. but. Uh, <laughs> you know well, and, and so I think in the beginning it was like you know how to make a really realistic figure from what's standing in front of you you see my cat back there yeah yeah
3: I do he
2: wants to be famous about, man right? <laughs> <laughs> so um you know then I had a need for my own work which you know I was kind of also trying to figure that out in my studio I didn't once again wasn't so comfortable that you know even my own work was reaching the standards that you know i was seeing around me in the painting program so it was like you know stand in front of a model and work really hard on trying to make it naturalistic realistic whatever term you'd like to use and so it's like looking at trying to look at a static thing and make it you know make a sculpture of a sculpture you know like the model yeah, not moving yeah, and mm-hmm. you're just copying it and so that was going on for many years until I was like, well, listen, man, this isn't like making art, you know, so I'm, like, I'm like copying yeah. a model here. Like, I didn't feel that Robert, this is, you were,
0: know- Robert, were there other sculptors you were looking at at the time for in, like kind of influencing your teaching or people that were inspiring you as far as whether they're classical or, you know, I mean, modern, you know, modern sculptors or anything?
2: yeah all, a lot of the sculptors that i was looking at were coming out of the new york new york academy it was the only other program that had a, a high quality sculpture program going on at mm-hmm. the time and i remember the names you know back then there wasn't much internet that you could research but you know eric Goulder um was one i don't know if you either of you know him but you know, I was getting New York Academy of Art brochures sent to me and, you know, some of the sculpture that was just so phenomenal. It blew me away. And Sabian Howard was another one
3: yeah. who
2: was, you know, featured in their in their earlier catalogs when he was a student. And both of those two, I was looking at them and what it gave me was this encouragement like, geez, people are doing this. Yeah because it was like you know it, it, you know once again before the days of the internet where where you could google all these all these things <laughs> and find all these sources i'm sure there was many more people that were doing maybe good quality work but i just didn't know where to look and, and how to find them so i was getting a lot of inspiration from these young guys coming out of the new york academy actually and eric goulder i met like like right soon before I left Florence, a few years, he actually moved to Italy and he, this guy is coming into my studio. We had an open house. He's like, hi, I'm Eric Goulder. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I was like, did you know that? I was, like one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing today is because of these sculptures you made when you were a graduate student. Um, uh, So that was kind of exciting. And I've, I've never met Sabine, but he's been through Florence. We've never had a chance to meet, but I've been in touch with him. So. Uh, so what I what I think I needed because you know how it went, you know, 25 years ago, it's like this work, it was hard for it to be accepted, you know, uh, more than it is today. And although I, I think just kind of
1: sculpture had more of a past than painting did. I mean, maybe I don't know.
2: No, I don't know. I think sculpting, um, you know, from the whole sort of dissolving of the quality f- teaching that occurred from after the french academy fell apart um uh affected sculpture in a great way i found that a lot of contemporary sculptors and i'm not going to name names like the bigger names back in the day were doing what i was considering quite uninteresting sculpture very generalized mm-hmm. very idealized but almost like you know, if they were making, you know, dolls or, you know, something that I was much more interested in naturalism and um, the natural qualities that were on a model. And I think a lot of contemporary sculptors that were from the older generation back then were doing these quite generic idealized works. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's where, you know, Eric Goulder and the New York Academy guys, they were doing quite naturalistic figurative sculpture. And all I needed, I think at that time was sort of an inspiration to know that um, other people out there were doing this. And yeah. that's what kind of drove me.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I, yeah, I, d- I definitely think sometimes when you know that there's something out there, that it almost gives you permission so to, go when... fo- to go forward and do that. But, you yeah, know, yeah, what, what, what's funny about sculptures and what you were saying before is I think we look at sculpture much differently than we look at painting, you know. And even though it kind of occupies the same headspace of, of art, it's so different because sculpture takes up the same amount of space as like a human being does. So I think when you're around a sculpture, you act differently towards it than you would a painting. There's two different like um, experiences. And I think um, for me, somebody who's really into painting, when I am around a sculpt sculpture, it's different. And I feel like I get different qualities of like inspiration from it that would be different than a painting.
2: Yeah. But you're not going to say as a painter, sculptor is just something in a gallery that you walk around to go look at the paintings.
0: No, oh, like, what is it if you back up like a sculpture's uh, uh something you run into when you, when well, you it's basically back like is just in the way of looking being able to look at paint.
3: Excuse me, sculpture, you're in my way. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so wait, um, Rob, I'm curious what like specifically, what like when you had this sort of revelation about, you know, just kind of sculpting a sculpture versus sculpting something kind of more alive and naturalistic. Like how did that transformation take place in your work or how did that transformation manifest itself in, in your work?
2: You mean studying the model as if like I'm copying it and making art out of a static image Is that versus what you're like about, once
1: you started to break out of that and started to feel well, like
2: it, it, it was just out of a need of creation. I had a concept that I wanted to create in sculpture and there was no possible way a model was going to take the pose.
3: So how do you deal with
2: that? um, I mean, it's quite interesting. A lot of the premise of drawing in space is is rooted in trying to, is understanding how the inside of the body connects Mm -hmm. through the pelvis, the ribcage, the spinal column, and then the external connections into the arm. So, you know, that I was quite familiar with as a sculptor. Also, we work with observation principles of trying to reduce the amount of foreshortening that um, we're addressing when we're looking at a model. So we're actually studying a, sculptor, a uh, the model flat to us, mm. and that helps us to understand like each part because, flat. Yeah, or the model in general, if uh-huh. if you're not breaking it down. So. You know, these couple the observation principles and then coupled with the principles of how to connect the body internally, so you can construct a pose from imagination. Um, and then you can hire a model and then just ask them to hold the le- their leg in the position no. that you're trying to right. create. So they can do that. And then you say, uh-huh. okay, now stop and let's let me see the other leg. And so then you can pull the naturalistic information off the model in a, a reasonable position. Um, or in a reasonable way. And then there's always sort of invention where the pose doesn't isn't complete. Like if it's between the torso and the pelvis and you're making kind of uh, large exaggerations, let's say between those two elements that the model can't hold, you then kind of work on an idea about what the form should do,
3: mm-hmm. which
2: is also another kind of major premise of drawing in space. The idea of particularly within the torso about how to understand compression and extension when it comes to forms and how that relates to line quality and form quality. Mm-hmm. So based upon the idea that an extended side of the human body, which you would study in a contrapposto anyway, is the forms are flatter and the lines are tauter.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've experienced this You know, every time you look at a contrapposto. So yeah. you can kind of, if you're having to t- try to invent sort of a concept of line quality and form quality in an area that you can't see on the model, you can do it. Do you think it's helpful
1: to push it beyond?
2: Wait, wait, one at a time, (laughs) gentlemen.
1: Go ahead, Tony.
0: I was going to say, do you think it would be (laughs) helpful um, in doing something so dynamic as that? um, Then, even looking at. Uh, uh uh photographs where you would like take a shot of of somebody in like in in extreme action to sort of see what the muscles are doing do you feel like that that doesn't help now,
2: at all i've never incorporated photography into my practice um but i'm not also the person that would sit up here and condemn it as a uh as something i think if um if you can use things to help you make your work better mm-hmm. then do it you know, um, I'm not a fan of like, let's say photorealist painting necessarily, but uh, I would if you if if a painter used a photograph but still kept their work painterly, um, I, you know, I don't think that gets in the way of it. So yeah. you know, if I had a need to photograph something, I wouldn't hesitate to do it. I just not, not haven't needed it. But I do something similar. For example, I'll do life castings of generally feet and hands. Mm. So almost any project mm. I do, you know, a model can never really hold their hand in a position that is consistent. And so what I wind up doing is usually casting their feet in their hand. Also, I mean, there's a funny need, just as a financial need, like, you know, it could take when you're doing a life-size foot, um, <laughs> you could be hiring literally a model for like 40 <laughs> hours or 20 hours. GoPro, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's just out of a need. Well, It's like, listen, if I can cast their foot, you know, uh, I mean I, I can just go yeah. and study with that
1: when the model Yeah, I've done that um, for a around. painting with the hand. Yeah,
2: well
0: what what do you use? Do you use like a plaster or sort of because I remember <clears throat> I used to uh when I was a kid, I used to be kind of interested in some of the make like the makeup effects from movies, and they would cast things in something called dental alginate alginate yeah, yeah. That's which gets pores it's yeah. so accurate that's what that i it use for hands pores. yeah yep is that something you would use or would you just use no. a plaster to get the basic <laughs> <laughs>
2: um i i'm like an old school guy i i just work with a plaster waste mold <clears throat> yeah. um and i've actually not really cast many hands but i've cast more feet like i can look at my own hand in the position i want to create and you know then just think about if it's a female sculpture like make my hand feminine you know it's like yeah make impossible. the fingers a little bit more elegant <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, possible
2: so, big um, sculpture hand sculpture hands, you know, but I think you know I think always the big thing for me is getting you know getting the position worked out that you're hoping to work from so uh anyway the so you know these were advances let's see for me as a sculptor I was you know reaching beyond what I was capable of or at least to have not experienced up to that point, but then I was able to bring it in the studio. So at the end of the day, you know, like drawing in space leads to this ability. I think you know, as a practice, once you learn it, you can actually make anything you want. Um, and I think that's an important thing for art. And I find this quite funny a lot of the time that like this idea of looking at a, looking at a model and eliminating the foreshortenings and looking at it flat. That wouldn't be something a sculptor would think to do. Yeah. Um so it's a bit of an uncommon approach but I also noticed that a lot of people when I'm looking at painting I mean I'm seeing a lot of flat painting like they're plain painting like the model head on or hmm. from profile or there's like very few painters I know Shane Wolf maybe one who paints like these extreme foreshortenings and like yeah. these, like you're looking up at the yeah. figure Yeah
1: Robert Liberace. Yeah,
2: yeah. so you know, But, you know, you look at the history of art and this is what, you know, when they were composing large figure groups and Titian was painting his assumption, you know, you got figures flying through the air, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And,
2: and the, the, the studio practice of looking at a static model, um, does it lead to that? Could I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe well, I know with our, with uh, our, our
0: own drawings, Ted, I, need- I know we – when I approach but where's
2: the- that leap? You know, like where's mm-hmm. that leap? So anyway, I, I, you know, if I was a painter, I'd be like trying to challenge. I'd like be trying to like make that picture frame like come out at you, like. Oh yeah. Or you know, try to really push the space in it. Like, what's well, interesting? That's though- what I.
1: I think that the figure in sculpture is very different from the figure in painting because the figure in painting has this context that you're building around it. And often the painting just becomes yeah. about that context and how you're using the figure yeah. as opposed to the figure itself. Whereas I think with sculpture, and this is an interesting thing because I think a lot of the atelier artists come out and, you know, want to just paint figures. And I don't think it's uh I think for sculpture, there you have more of a license to just to to sculpt a figure, just as a figure and try to go for naturalism as, as your subject,
2: right? As your subject, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And and with painting, I, I think it's a it's it's it, it's a tougher sell to make it, just to to sort of uh, validate that your focus on on just the figure.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But so anyway, these leaps that I was making um, allowed something I think very important. And, you know, it was hard to actually institute in the teaching because when you're working with a model in that in that way and doing these creative projects, you know, then then what you would need your students to do actually is have a private model. Because if you're asking a student to do a creative work of a pose that, you know, is different than any other student might decide to do, it's an independent project. So it was just hard in Florence to have 24 sculpture students, all that need a private model, all that need a space to do this. So the facility didn't really allow me in, to, to actually teach about these principles. So you teach about these principles through their study of the, the model while they're in groups. But this six month course I'm doing now, I haven't mentioned that, but here in Athens now, I've, I'm doing a, a different course. I'm, I've veered away a little for the time being from these two week workshops I've been doing and, teaching a six month course. And that's out of my own pleasure to, to see a student evolve a little bit more. And that was difficult in a two week period. Um, but I'm teaching them all these principles now, um, and making sure that they understand what the, the, the purpose and the goal of it is, you know, the purpose and the goal of it isn't to just kind of keep recreating the, the class contrapposto and keep sculpting that over and over again. And that's your career. You know, you're supposed to, and I had them do, in the beginning, I had them do imaginary sculpture studies of, you know, I taught them the structural um, connections that are occurring in the body as, as uh, always the beginnings of all my courses. And then they were actually meant to bring in initially images from photograph of poses of whether they're dance poses and from a two dimensional image there, try to understand the pose and how it works in three dimensions. Then it, after that, they did that for a little bit. Then I brought in, then I asked them to come in with, an imaginary idea of a pose that they may be able to take or understand or have seen or were inspired by and create imaginary poses from as a maquette, a maquette. So mm-hmm. they are getting used to, you know, there's this one, you know, there's, so to me, there's a different, you know, there's a mindset that you teach someone when they're sitting in front of a model, but that's not only about th- that. If that was all they thought that making art is about then they're closing the box around maybe their creative, you know, ideas that might, that might spring up in the future. So then there's this idea of trying to teach them to think about work in an imaginary way. So it was quite interesting for me to be doing this course because I don't have any restrictions about how I can conduct it. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I can incorporate some of these exercises that, um, that I think will lead to people leaving school with uh, leaving, leaving the six month course. I don't think of it what I'm doing now as a school, um, but with a strong understanding, like they can work to the full potential of the process that I teach them.
1: So are you also working with models and then it's, it's sort of you're fusing kind of their imaginary works or, or the, the sort of the maquettes that they're making from imagination or from whatever, And then also working from, from life.
2: Yeah, they're working. Well, in the beginning, they're working from life half a day and they're working with these imaginary projects the other half of the day. But once again, you know, your thought process that you're, you're kind of working through when you're putting together an imaginary figure is more about how you're composing it. And, and, you know, what, uh, what, what you could do to compose it better. You know, what's the aesthetic of what you're putting together? Is it convincing? Um, Whereas, you know, once again, a lot of the thing when you're starting to teach people, at least initially with a, f- a figure model, you're, you know, they're struggling to get a good contourage working on there, right? right. So it's more about rooted in observation, like comparing this to that, right? Um, which is different than thinking about a work on its own terms. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to teach them about is like conceiving of their sculpture on their own terms. And even their class projects, there's also a moment in drawing in space where... Uh, you're setting up a premise from the beginning about how to finish and resolve a sculpture. So you're setting up principles for so for example, um, a contour edge that you guys would refer to as a silhouette or as an external contour. We study that quite extensively in drawing in space. And but that's a, a peak of form. So you understand that when you're looking at an external contour, it's a form,
3: mm-hmm. but
2: it's just a moment of the form. Mm-hmm that you're seeing so the idea in drawing in space is that when you come up to sort of a conclusion of getting good working contours what you've set is a premise to be able to model form because you've now found the peak to a large array of forms so what i'm teaching my students to do which is another thing that i do is that knowing this what i do is i work a lot without a model Mm -hmm. so if i've set up the premise of a good working contour that i'm satisfied with I can then use it to begin modeling my work. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. So what ends up, so I'm doing that also with the students and it was very difficult for them to make this bridge. Like they had a model in the morning. They're meant to take this project to a certain point where they had confidence in some contours and then work on them in the afternoon on their own. Mm -hmm. And it was difficult for them to do. And they're all like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to go about this. And I was talking about it, but you know, at the end of the day, I was like, listen, I need to, I want you to have an experience with your work that isn't just like, is the proportion of my pectoral right? That these are the questions you're asking yourself. We do that all morning. You know, now in the afternoon, I just want you to kind of think of the work on its own terms. So if, if you don't really know, if you're not feeling comfortable that you've set up good working contours, so you don't feel that you can actually manage form right now, then then, just still have an experience with your sculpture, but I also find that, as they're going over this and trying to model some forms without a model, they come up to spaces that they're unfamiliar with, and those are often spaces that are dead spaces that they've not really engaged with while they've been working with a model. and It's like, listen, you're going to learn about what to look for when the model comes yeah. back, so it's not yeah. in a, it's not that the model stops and then they start working exclusively right. yeah. without a model. The model it's comes back the next the day,
3: yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a dialogue between the two. I found this, I mean, with my own experience sculpting the figure is that uh, it really transformed the way that I approached drawing and painting the figure in that like you, there were certain kind of landmarks that I would go for really quickly with sculpture to identify when the model was posing and to sort of uh, calibrate the relationships between those landmarks and, Mm -hmm. you know, the gesture. And then uh, a lot of the sculpture, I wind up working on without the model, like just trying to make it look like what I understand the model to be. and I don't need the model there to 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 sort of to work on that. And I find that like with the figure, it becomes the same thing that like increasingly, I can work on portraits or on figures, without the person sitting in front of me because there's an idea in my head that I'm trying to yeah. sort of,
2: well, yeah. And we all know talk. that this work has to exist without, you know, we all know that the model's not there when it's done and, you know, the work's right. got to, you know, live on its own. Yeah. Um, uh, so anyway, I, you know, there's a lot of things to learn about that, but, you know, I've never completed a sculpture on the last day of a model session Right. This has <laughs> never happened. Right, right. It's like a so, month after the model stopped. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. You throw so, in the you towel. Know, <laughs> and I think that that was, you know, a lot, when I left Florence teaching in that situation, um, a lot of things um, changed. And in, in, in what I was doing and how I was teaching, I was I, I've always worked without a model when I could. Um, once again, but never instituted as a practice in Florence, you know, the second you take away model time from a student in Florence, it's like you're committing heresy, you know, <laughs> then you have another like massacre you on your off. hands. <laughs> but, you know, I, I would walk in, you know, the, but I also understood like, OK, so, you know, these mod- these students are getting 10 weeks of model time every day to do one project. And I was aware that when I walked into that model room on the seventh week of their pose, none of them are looking at the model. Right. Nobody. Yeah. yeah. Um. And almost every day, on the, they're just trying to get their sculpture complete and work, and the model's standing there, and everyone's like, <laughs> no one's looking at it, and you just look at this poor model, like, why Paying are they the model doing for this? nothing? Yeah. Tortured <laughs> exactly. all the weight on one leg. <laughs> so I save I've a lot of money that it was that it was a need in my teaching to t- try to teach people how to deal with the sculpture, also in very practical ways that things they're setting up from observation can be taken into an understanding of how to model form practically but then also then how to look at the work on its own terms um so these are things that i'm instituting here uh that i think are very interesting to work with i say that i say to the students here i'm finally teaching drawing in space as it's intended um and a lot of funny things happen i mean on like in florence i was teaching on monday and thursday and so tuesday didn't have much as of a significance to me as a teacher on how to help a student manage their work. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tuesday, the second day of a project that for me did, but I never had to walk in on a Tuesday and help students deal with their work or a Wednesday. But when I started teaching two week workshops, and I was the only teacher Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all of a sudden needed to have a greater significance than I've ever really needed to deliver to a student. So it's been interesting to teach on my own in that way, actually. Um, to bring significance to people's daily work that I just never had to do over a 20 year period. (laughs) Now was always picking up like just where they're at. Right. So if you're not teaching a student on a daily basis, you come by to their work after they've been dealing with it for four days and you just have to kind of like, you know, okay, where are we, you know, you've got to get familiar with where they're at and then say, okay, you know, this is what I think you need to work on. But you don't go back three days and think, okay, you weren't there on Tuesday to know what the drawing looked like. So you can't (laughs) really comment on that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you you can't comment on that. So so this has been interesting for me. And I've also been changing sort of the time that students are dealing with projects because I'm really, really, really against these like 10 week long projects um, for learning purposes. Now that may make sense to a more advanced sculpture sculptor but um, it definitely doesn't make sense for someone who's getting used to sculpting. So it's, there's been like, no, they're doing a brief long project here at the end as we're ending this first sort of term now, but it's all been two day poses, three day poses, throw it away, oh, wow. start again, two day poses, three day poses, start over. And all not, you know, and all with partial goals, like they're not trying to create a sculpture in two days. They're trying to learn something in two days. Mm. Do you
3: so
1: think this Ken- has just been, Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
2: No, that's so it's, it's been really nice for me um, as a teacher to actually teach in the way I've had a hard time instituting these things in Florence. Um, mm-hmm. Logistically, it was, it would have been a nightmare. So um, to design a course, it's, I think what is more ideal for the process I teach.
1: It sounds like maybe also some of the, your teaching is, is sort of getting down to kind of the fundamentals of the sculpture itself and getting away from finish. Is that, is that right? Like kind of quicker. Well,
2: you know, I'm always, you know, if you've done your work well in the beginning and middle of sculpting, finish kind of just falls into place. It's not, Mm -hmm. there's not a trick there at that point that all of a sudden, you know, makes the sculpture alive, you know, and sculptures can be somewhat unfinished and still look strong. But Um, seven
1: weeks in, I mean, people are, you know, have been spending a lot of time like on finish on really like, which is, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a given that it like that all the forms will resolve really well. It's it's that's also really tough.
2: No, but I also, you know, sculpting is one of those things, you know, you're dealing with us, you know, something in the round so that, you know, to get all the relationships to work on, on this level, I Mm -hmm. say to my students, there's always areas you're compromising on a sculpture, right? You know, you know, we're not making little copies of human beings here. Right. So um, what ends up taking place is that you, you, you'll find that there's ways to compromise and I say to students well listen if you're going to have to compromise on spaces that may not be worked out so well or relationships you never want to compromise on bones
3: mm-hmm. on
2: bony edges because right. if you make your if you compromise on your bones you're going to probably make them look like an organic form um like so now you got this little rubbery bone like clavicle on your sculpture and that just looks awkward yeah so I say you know you never so I teach my students on areas where that they can actually compromise in an easier way that's not distracting. So -hmm. it's quite easy to compromise in flesh, you know, like the thigh, you know, or, you know, the buttocks or whatever it may be the abdomen. So I do think that, you know, I've never made a sculpture myself. That's just sort of a, a copy of a model. So I understand this idea of compromise.
0: (laughs) Do you feel like your, your change of environment from, Italy to Greece influenced anything, you know, kind of not only your teaching, but your aesthetics towards teaching, like being in Greece and being around what would be classical sculptures, as opposed to what was in Italy? Do you feel like that's sort of uh, getting in you at all?
2: Oh, definitely. And I think that that was um, something that was occurring while I was in Florence. I mean, one of the reasons I moved here is my wife is Greek from here. So um, the, you know, and she was we were married and living in Florence for about a decade. So there was always going to be probably a move over here. Um, So I was coming here a lot. And what ends up taking place? And I think it's a little bit like, you know, when I grew up, I liked Metallica. But now I like maybe something a little quieter. I don't know if that's your experience with things, but
0: uh, no, I know I like it Renes- louder and more aggressive now. <laughs> <laughs> but
2: you know, know, Michael, so I grew up the same way. <laughs> uh, Michelangelo is my big hero, yeah. and being in Florence for twenty years, you know what I would say is that there's a lot of big sculptures of men with big muscles in scu- Florence made by men. Um, there's nothing feminine about the sculptures in Florence. Unless you go to look at Donatello's David and the Bargello, but, um, I find that there's a little bit more of a feminine, softer, quieter touch in Greek sculpture that I think attracts me in being a little bit more pleasant, more digestible aesthetic experience that you can have with the work, Um, so as I was coming here and going to the museums, because all they have is sculpture here, you know, there's no Greek paintings lying around anywhere. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, all you're confronted with is sculpture. Um, you know, I was gravitating towards this more peaceful uh, experience with with the object um, that it was hard to have. a. You know, when you look at the Medici tombs in Florence, it's hard to uh, feel a peaceful experience with those figures Michelangelo carved on the sarcophagus there. Yeah, just, you know it's so it's, but you know they're, you know it's just like wanting to drive a car fast. You know it's like, you know now I don't do that so much anymore. <laughs> so, you never drove a
1: car fast. You might have drove a motorcycle was, fast. Yeah, that's true. I own. <laughs> I have a
2: car now. Yeah, I bought yeah. my first car. I bought my first car at the age of forty-eight. Can you believe that?
1: Does that mean well, no more motorcycle? No, I have my motorcycle. Now.
0: Oh. <laughs> That transition from the classical to the Hellenistic period over there in Greece, when you look at some of that 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 sort of whatever three hundred BC Greek sculpture, it's so it's so specific to the time. And and a lot of the 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 the, the Roman or the, the 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 Italian sculptures I saw, you're totally right. They became like sort of like superhero versions of yeah. some of that classical and and Hellenistic sculptures and i was just wondering if if that transition changed or if i didn't exactly know why you uh, uh went to greece but i was like did you go there for the sculpture because greece is sculpture central
2: no i came here for a woman for a woman <laughs> and the baklava <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and i say to myself you know how many sculptors that do what i do got to live in florence italy for 20 years and then moved to athens and I say well I guess now I got to move to Paris because you know I got to hit all the major you know um places um
3: living so in the Paris Rodin.
2: So, well I you know the classical greek sculpture to the renaissance to the the french academic period I w- I would have all like the major well I'd have to go to Rome then too and hit the baroque but um yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm covering all the I'm living in all the major areas of where all the major figurative sculpture was produced. It's so quite, in quite the, nice actually. In
1: the Bernini versus Michelangelo, your Michelangelo team.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I used to call um, you know, Bernini's work is, you know, it's just, you know, your mouth's on the floor looking at it. Um, yeah. but I always I always walked out of the Borghese Museum with a headache. Um, and I called it the Baroque headache. <laughs> um, because it's like it's like it broke the you. broke headache it's just <laughs> like too, it's taking too much in almost you know that that to me it's like as you see like multiple 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 bernini figures you know it's it's daunting you know and i'm another person like you know i don't know what how you guys deal with this when i go to a museum I, you know i like places like the frick and the gardener and the. Um, I like these, I like small museums. Like when I walk into the Louvre, if I walked into the Louvre tomorrow, I'm going to go see five things and leave. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to just walk from room to room to room to room to room. And then like, like, and then everything just becomes a blur at one point. Um, but yeah, my experience with Bernini is that like, you kind of walk out of there with like your head's thumping because (laughs) you've just taken in too much aesthetic, you know, for, (laughs) for the time for, yeah.
1: It seems like rhythmically and gesturally though, he's maybe an influence on you. No.
2: Uh, You know, the rhythm and gesture of my work is more rooted in the power of aesthetic. And I think it's also an interesting topic that, you know, a lot of work is conceived out of a specific narrative that we want to maybe um, convey. Um, or, and what I find is that if my work, my work doesn't always—I'm not a sculptor who tries to preach to people with a narrative, but um, I do. A narrative is helpful to guide your decision making as you're as you're moving through a sculpture. But uh, you know, I find I get into these moments where I'm like battling between creating a better aesthetic. Or trying to augment a narrative and sometimes they they come into collision with each other like i'm i gotta go in one direction or the other right um and I mean, i'm the aesthetics. Almost,
1: that's your past like the abstraction right
2: yeah but i'm almost always the aesthetics for me win. huh and i always remember i went to los angeles and i did this i you know, I did this uh, video series for new master's Academy and I also did the demo sculpture for this new book that we're writing. And I did a demo for, with it for an audience towards the end. And one guy asks me, he said, how do you get so much gesture in your work? And I looked at him and I said, because that's all I look for, hmm. you know, it, and I teach a lot about gesture. I mean, I think if mm-hmm. anything, if you talk to a lot of my mm-hmm. students and said, you know, what does Rob really hit home about? Um, it's about taking, exploiting the movement and harmonies of the human body. Mm-hmm. And maybe those are the things in the drawing room that eluded me back in Boston University when I was a student, you know, all the, you know, the, the human body is so amazing in how it's harmoniously composed and put together and flows just on its own. Um, the mechanics of it and the aesthetics of it are just remarkable. Um, and I think that's probably what I just couldn't get on paper. And that probably is what's always frustrating me. So uh, I, I pursued gesture out of a desire and I had cut co- these conversations. A lot of students are asking me here, you know, what do you do? You know, what would you advise to me do, to do afterwards? And I say, you know, I think you got to try to make something no one can ignore. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? You know, um, I think you got to make something unique. And I think you got to make something people just can't ignore. You know, when you get off and you start having opportunities to exhibit, you're going to be probably participating in group exhibits where not only every other work that's in the ex- exhibition is going to compete with what you've made, but every plinth, lighting fixture, color on the wall, you know, the aesthetic of everything around you is attracting people or turning people off. So, you know, you make something that when someone walks in that gallery door, they're just making a beeline over to your work. They can't ignore it. It's the Easier dominant thing done. in the room. <laughs> well, you know, I think that there's the power of aesthetic, you know, that um that, you know, I once again as I'm saying that usually often wins out in my work um if it comes into conflict with me pushing the narrative. And like I said to you, I don't try. I have a narrative that helps guide me, but it's not necessarily a narrative that I'm preaching to people as the purpose of me making this, right? Mm-hmm. So it's you know the narrative usually takes a little bit of a backseat to to the the quality of the aesthetic.
1: Well, it sounds like the narrative it's like, is what's driving you versus driving. people yes, exactly. looking At the work,
2: and I think if it drives me and it inspires me, that that's enough as the maker, right? You know, I don't know if that needs to follow through to the to the viewer. So I've always been wanting to dominate with aesthetic in my work. And um, I think it's a powerful tool, but I still believe, you know, in all this, all these things that we can see of people make artistically today that I still really believe in the term visual art with a capital V-I-S-U-A-L. You know where a lot of work becomes narrative or conceptual or conceptual art and narrative works and um I, i'm a big believer in the visual aspect of things it's what's always attracted me to anything it's what yeah. made me want to live in europe the aesthetic of the place um yeah. walking around florence is not like walking around des moines iowa you know and easy
3: <laughs> easy a lot of so, <laughs> des
1: moines. and it's a beautiful city so, <laughs> you know, walk this podcast is sponsored experiment- by the Des Moines
2: <laughs> <laughs> Tourist Bureau. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there's one building in Des Moines. <laughs> um, but I uh, you know, these experiences in my life of coming to Europe and like seeing these things for the first time, it's you know, I don't look up at a building that is so inspiring, you just gotta stop your oh, day, yeah. even if you weren't intending to and and just take it in. Um, it's not preaching a narrative to you. Mm -hmm. Right. Architecture doesn't preach to you. Um, So, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, anyway, so um, these, these were, you know, coming from America where, you know, my growing up experience, you know, you'd have to go to the woods to have a nice sort of visual experience um, instead of the strip malls that, you know, line all the roads that led out of the city. Right. And even when I go back there today, you know, I'm just like, Oh my God, can someone give me those blinders I had on the airplane?
3: <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah.
2: Um, or just take me to the woods or take me somewhere else. It's another reason I, one of the reasons I love studying in Boston actually, because Boston aesthetically is downtown is a beautiful, beautiful city. But, um, well, uh, I think the, aesthetic, anyway, these are,
0: the aesthetic idea is really important. I know for when I'm even teaching where, um, when you, I always kind of see it as a hook, like the aesthetic is as as much, even if you have like a very powerful concept or a, a philosophy that you want to share with somebody, nobody's going to get it if they're not interested, or if they walk by your piece, even in a professional, yeah. like selling sure. way where I'm, I, I think of it as casting out Uh, a hook to grab the viewer and pull them into the, into the piece, whatever it is. And then once they're there, hopefully you can have a conversation with them and then they can dig deeper into what the meaning is, but without a a really good aesthetic, I think you're going to, you're not necessarily turn off people. You're just not going to grab them and then have that conversation. So you need to have that almost that icebreaker. And I felt in art a beautiful or a great or an interesting, amazing aesthetic really begins the conversation. And then you can, and then you can get past it. And hopefully if you get past it, there's something really great in there to sort of digest.
2: Yeah. Well, it's also, I've always found that when I was a student in Boston, I studied with Isabel McElveen or shed is she had two names. Um, I'm not sure which one she used as a professional, but she had an exhibition in Philadelphia over the summer and that she was preparing for at the end of one school year. And so, you know, we had the summer and I remember walking into the school of fine arts on the first day and there she was. And I go, Oh, Isabel. And the first thing I thought about was you had a big exhibition this summer. And I said, how did it go? And she said, well, it was fantastic. It was very well attended. And it seemed like on the opening night, I was going to make a lot of sales, um, which for any artist is a good thing. Right. Um, whether you financially need it or not. It's just, you know, someone buying your creations is yeah, it's important. validation. the, ulti- it's important, the ultimate yeah. form of flattery. Um, and I said, Oh, that's fantastic. I was really happy for her. And I said, so what happened? She goes, no one bought anything. And I said, really? Why, why do you think that was? And she goes, cause I told them what the work meant to me. Really? And you let that sink in for a second. Um, the work meant something very specific to her, which when people came up to talk to her about it, she relayed to them. Then the work stopped being maybe what those people were admiring about it. Hmm. Interesting. You know, those, those images where you'd say, it's like, you you know, you look at something and you're like, okay, you know, I see this, but then, you know, underneath it, it says, do you see the orange? Then all of a sudden you see the orange and then you can't unsee it. Like these trick (laughs) images.
3: Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's That's a, a little
2: bit like, you know, I think people need to have an experience with art as well, that people sort of if if the work, you know, I think that some of my work is a little bit mysterious when it comes to the narrative. And I think that I, I purposefully kind of weave that into the sculpture because I think it can mean a, a lot of things, different things to different people. Yeah, that ambiguity, and, I think, can be great. Yeah. And I think it's important because if you say this work is about this, it means this and this is what I'm telling you about it. It's like, well, that's not what I was picking up there.
3: Right.
2: Yeah. No, well, anyway, I'm gonna kind of go talk over I'm gonna go look at that sculpture <laughs> over there. Um, and kind of move by your work because you kind of just killed it for. Them.
0: That's why a title sometimes <laughs> can be good or bad. You can, well, untitled. Yeah, so you can always
1: untitled. <laughs>
2: yeah. I I used to think I I used to believe in that to not, I didn't want ever really want to title my work. Um and I was, John Spike was an influential art historian that lived in Florence and you would mm-hmm. meet him on occasion. He'd come to some exhibitions. And, you know, I was talking to this about, with, I was talking to this very subject with him and he looked at me and he goes, Rob, you've got a few words to help a viewer. You know, like people are going to walk yeah. up to your sculpture, not get it at all. And you just have a few words that you could help pull them into it a little, little bit better. So he he found it quite important. A
0: good title now, can also a good title can also <laughs> blast out your imagination too. Meaning, it can enhance the the viewer's imagination to not only see what you want to see, but sort of go beyond and be like, "Well, now my yeah. brain is just working and working." And I think that could be a good thing, especially yeah. if you whether it's a, sculpt, a sculpture, a painting, or a drawing really set it up in a way where it kind of not necessarily leaves breadcrumbs, but just there's this I don't want to say and amb- it's open enough for people mm-hmm. to get different yeah. interpretations of it. I think there's something really great about having a good idea that is something conceptual that you want to get across, but is also open enough that people can ta- take an interpretation and just let them see something beautiful in it or whatever something that is meaningful to them.
2: Yeah, yeah, 100% in agreement there.
1: Yeah, it's not an easy thing to do, but I think it's tough, though. I mean, sculpture, you guys also have the added, like, not every us
2: guys, everybody, there's some girls, too.
1: You folks, (laughs) you You peoples. um, (laughs) your pronouns, (laughs) dad, pronouns. (laughs) You're normally really good at this.
2: You have to be. You live in America, man. (laughs) (laughs) uh,
1: But I mean, for for painters, you know, the the pandemic actually turned out to be kind of a good thing because people were at home staring at their walls and then started buying art to put on their walls because they were spending so much time with their walls. But sculpture, it's it's a little harder to find a place, particularly like a life size figurative sculpture or even like busts. It's not everybody has like a pedestal or the space to put a sculpture. It's,
2: it's, I think. No, I agree with you. I I think the sculpture, you know, a sculptor that's looking to go and work in the gallery world um, is up against a lot. Um, uh, And one of those being space, you know, when I was exhibiting largely on the East coast and I was exhibiting large pieces, life-size pieces, you know, I didn't sell a single one of them. That's the minute, rough. the minute I moved my work to a gallery in LA, they were selling. Yeah. And then you got to think about, okay, well, you know, these pe- people that may be purchasing this are thinking, well, this is an outdoor piece because right. that's another advantage. They don't have to stick it in their foyer. Right, They can put it out in their garden, but you know, in the Northeast, you're not spending, you know, how many months a year are you spending out in your garden? Do you right. want to buy, do you want to buy an expensive sculpture to look at for three months a year? <laughs> um, so in la you know out there you know you can go and put you know a sculpture outdoors and and enjoy it all year around yeah yeah for me, I,
0: for me with sculpture i i i get
2: kind of frustrated so send because... your work send sculptures to la <laughs> yeah is that what you tell your students <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, i tell my students I... getting your getting your sculptures in a gallery is only half the yeah. um you know i think a lot of young artists out there think just working with a gallery is like this Big moment. And sure, yeah, it feels that way. But, you know, a gallerist needs merchandise on their shelves and on their walls, right? So they're looking for people to, you know, you're the one investing in the production of the work and they're just taking it on and putting it on their walls and on their plinths. So they're they're kind of happy to take work. Um, Right. But even putting work in a gallery that's only, you know, it still takes for someone to walk in that wants it to purchase it and have the place to put it. Exactly. So I mean that's you know, just the fact that your work sits in a gallery isn't isn't you know, you can't take a victory lap yet, you know. You <laughs> right? never get to take a victory lap. There are no victory laps <laughs> I don't, I don't in art. Argue. <laughs> yeah. So um But I think it's a good thing for people to keep in mind because when I was younger, I was like, oh, just get your work in a gallery, just get your work in a gallery, just get your work in a gallery. And then you do, and you're like waiting for paychecks to roll in, and you're like, huh? (laughs) But with (laughs) sculpture, also,
1: it's so heavy. Like shipping is, you know, and then, and even having a bronze made, it's expensive. Like all of that is. No,
2: it's a huge investment, a huge investment, which is one of the reasons I think that teaching students to, um, kind of eliminate model hours they may need to pr- produce a project right um yeah, uh that's smart. can can help them then invest into the mold making or the production of it in a permanent material um that you know the idea of like you need a model budget of three thousand euros to produce a sculpture w- is ridiculous but if you think that you need 10 weeks of model time every day to make a sculpture then you need 3000 euros or whatever of model time. And that's in right. Europe, in America, you probably need way more than that. <laughs> so, you know, listen, cut out a of that, or almost 2000 of that. And then make sure that, you know, that's going to go into the production of the bronze. Right. Cause making the clay is only half. You're only halfway there with a the clay. <laughs> right. Do yeah. you do your own yeah, bronzes
1: so ever? Or you, you have,
2: you go out for, no, you no. Yeah. I I work on
1: finish, right?
2: I work. Yeah. I work on my bronzes. I work on my waxes. um, And that's the thing I find annoying. I don't like to be in foundries. You know, when you're in the comfort of your own studio and then you're all of a sudden in a foundry, um, it's a different workspace, but the, you know, when you're selling multiple editions of work, which is an advantage a sculptor has, right. So that's not something to be, to be, to be mentioned. You know, we can produce a, a series of eight, um, right. And exhibit one the same piece all over the place. Yeah. Um, so what ends up taking place though when you're producing a, a an edition is that you know you you've made the hand in clay you've made the mold and then you got to go check the wax and then you got to go touch up the hand in wax, then it comes out in bronze and then you got to touch up you know something in bronze. And that's the first edition, and then you do the second edition, and then you got to go touch up the wax, and then you got to go touch up the, the mm-hmm. hand in the bronze, and then whatever it may be, it's like you got to remake elements of the, of the same sculpture over and over and over again, And just, for me, it gets a little old, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. the... <laughs> Like I've made this hand fifteen times now. You know, it's like (laughs) I'm so sick of looking at it that
1: you know didn't I swing by once though, and you were like messing with a blowtorch and acid or something? Yeah, no, I would
2: I've seen my own sculptures. I work on my own sculptures. I've never poured a bronze, but I've done most of the process from pouring my own waxes to reworking my waxes to I'm a good mold maker so I ma- I generally make my own molds and and bring mm-hmm. those to the foundry um and I've I used to work with an like a maestro of patination in Florence he was my first founder there and he even made his own acids so I've even made my own acids to um create patinas on my sculptures that's
3: so uh, cool and he was just
2: a spe- he was just a special guy um old older gentleman you know one of those cooking you know like the idea of like you know how do you make like grandma's gravy, like she only knows. Yeah. She's the only no, one. It's, it's the touch. It's, just, it's the touch. Yeah, exactly. So we all know that. It's a little bit of that. And I went and worked with him. I went up to his foundry and, and, you know, I, I could never spend enough time to understand what he was doing um, entirely, but he would tell me that he would choose to patina a sculpture, always outdoors and that the humidity was going to play a role in how the the coloration was, was developing overnight and like all these things that were just like, you know, you need 50 years of experience to understand.
1: That's so cool. That's, I mean, that's, I mean, we get as painters, we get so into like materials and, and I feel like that's, those are the materials of sculpture probably or the equivalent in sculpture.
2: Yeah, it, it is. And we have to let it go at one point. You know, I think, you know, there's certain sculptors out there that I know are doing, um, a lot of their own work and that's usually also based upon not only that they can um but it's a financial consideration so if you do yeah. more part of your bronze cast um and I know sculptors um Gary Weissman is it, who is a, a teacher at Pafan a very influential figurative sculptor himself you know he built his own foundry and a lot of his students that studied with him um understand how to build um their own foundries so So the students that are working today still at Pafa and are, um, yeah, they have their own foundries and that cuts down costs like, you know, enormously, but then, you know, the idea of making a sculpture and then producing the bronzes, you know, it's like your process is going to be a lot lengthier. You know, I I personally don't want to, I'm slow enough as a sculptor to not want to have to (laughs) pour the bronze when I'm done at the end of, at the end (laughs) of the day. So
0: are you ever disappointed for um, the way it comes out in the bronze compared to when it was sculpted? You know, are you that well, trans? That trans? That translation is. Are you ever like ah? Oh
2: no! It definitely takes getting used to. Hmm. Bronze does not look like clay, and it's it's metallic and it's shiny. Because um, usually foundries will use a, to finalize the last thing they do is usually put for wax on their the patinas, which freezes the reaction from happening and keeps it consistent. because um, you know the acids that are interacting with the bronze, it's a live process. Mm-hmm. Like it will keep keep happening, keep evolving. Um, so wax usually freezes that from occurring. but uh, yeah, it takes some getting used to when you see it in light and it's reflecting um light in a way in a very different way. It definitely takes some getting used to.
0: Have you ever car have you ever gotten into carving like marble or anything?
2: I've carved some alabaster back when I was pursuing abstraction and and my abstractions were wood carving. That's what I was primarily doing. So yes, I've carved. um, But the carving today is much like the foundry industry. The foundry industry is there to support a sculptor's production and a lot of marble um, carving um, places are the same thing Mm -hmm. uh, that you know, you just bring like a maquette or you bring a finished plaster to, to a carving studio in Carrara and have a maestro carve it for you. Or now today, even a machine. Well, they can do it
1: with like pointing, right? Like those. Yeah. They do a pointing machine.
3: So
2: learning how to carve marble, of course, there's a lot about it in any marble carver out there. If I chagrined the process, but you know, a lot of it's about learning (laughs) how to point a lot of how to point and, you know, how not to destroy your wrist by swinging a heavy hammer and working yeah. with the right chisels at the right time and the right equipment at the right time. But it's a technical process, right? So, yeah. you know, if I wanted a piece of mine produced in marble and I've sought out this a little bit, actually, that some works of mine I felt, felt might work better in marble. I've, I've had conversations with studios in Carrara and Pietrasanta about how to get that done. So they've been over to my studio and I've talked about the price but you know the the price for carving a marble when you're outsourcing it is about the cost of producing the full edition of bronzes wow and so wow. it's yeah for one it's marble, a very obviously it's yeah. such a
1: beautiful material though uh it and is. then would you it do is. the finish is that like that's yeah. how you would kind of yeah take kind of yeah these robot over
2: arms that. now the the, mechan- the the robotic process where they're they're carving they leave these ridges right. like a I 3d s- printer
1: I think, uh, Mark and meant to
2: go. Yeah.
1: He did the, you helped him with the sculpture that he did. Uh, yes. And he, uh, he posted the pictures of that, like the robot kind of version. And then I guess yep. he kind of, he finished it.
2: Yeah. So we made a mold in the studio. He, we poured a plaster, he bought the plaster to, I think a, a studio in Carrara or Pietro Santa, I'm not sure where he went. And then he had that produced in marble. Mm-hmm. And then he worked with uh, a student of mine and, and who was familiar with carving and then had to go and kind of refinish that. But you can actually say like, leave me this amount to finish. Oh, like right. the machine can, the machine can be programmed <laughs> to come down to like <sighs> a half a millimeter Two millimeters, three millimeters. So you can actually determine how much you would like left to be finished in the carving.
1: There's something so sure. unsatisfying about that.
2: <laughs> well, it's you know, listen. I mean, it's like you know, how much time? Do, there's a you know, do you want to create works in your studio or just be sitting in a in a in a carving studio or in a foundry <laughs> all your life? I mean, I, I just once again, I would rather mm-hmm. be in the studio than. And, you know, um, I guess if I wasn't so into teaching and I just I do love teaching. So it's just an activity I look forward to always. Um, yeah, if I was sculpting full time and I had every day of the year yeah. to, to produce my work, maybe I would um, venture into some of these. Yeah, because you know, like I said, I'm I'm aware. You know, being an artist is all is a constant investment in in yourself and in your work. So yeah, you know, if you sell well, it just keeps kind of it just goes right back into your production, right? So, um, you know, I would I'm the kind of I like to teach the poor man's version of sculpting as best you can, <laughs> um, you know, making old traditional molds with plaster instead of you know, fiberglass and stuff like that, that, you know, there's always a, a, you know, material that's less costly and a less costly way to produce a bronze that, you know, you, but you got to know a lot about the process. Brian Booth Craig, I know is someone who does a lot of the bronze work on his, on his sculptures.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He does a lot of his own. Like, I think
2: he makes the molds and I think he pours the waxes and I think he then sends the waxes out to, I think, Colorado, um, where then they just, gate it, pour the bronze and send the, the, the raw bronze back to him. Yeah. Or then he refinishes it and welds it. And
3: so he does about
2: everything you possibly could do in the process short of him having a foundry himself. Yeah. 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 You know, like I said, that's going to reduce your costs.
0: Yeah. I know when you, when I'm traveling around the the States or, or even Europe, but uh, you know, you see a lot of buildings going up. And I see a lot of cranes and I see there's there's more building going on than ever. And it's something that always dawned on me when we were talking earlier about about being a professional sculptor is one of the things, you know, back to selling in L.A. or compared to New York is I would really love to see those buildings start occupying sculpture. Like there's room, I see all these buildings going up and I was like, God, that like would be sure a lot of
2: sculptors but, would too. Yeah.
0: Yes, exactly. But that's something that sort of always frustrated me that I see all these buildings going up and I'm like, Th- those are the places for sculptures. But Like I is- understand owning something in your
1: own house is great, but like to have public sculptures. More, but a lot of the sculptures, sculptures, I mean, you do see it, and a lot of it is abstract. I mean, it I think is, that. The, but it yeah, might have one big figurative. giant thing in,
0: in in a in a plaza or something, or in a lobby.
1: But I mean, but there's it's, room it's, for sculptures. It's easier because it's never going to be controversial if it's if it's yeah. abstract. I mean, like people, as soon as you have a person that somebody can recognize as a human being, as as a, as a person that's either like them or not like them or whatever, like then you have people you know, forming opinions. And I think that the goal of that art is not to be artistic at all. It's just to take up space and be a gesture that they, you know.
2: Yeah, no, it's, you know, well, well, public commission work is, is, um, a definite career direction many sculptors pursue because there's actually a lot of money in it. That's probably Mm -hmm. where you'll, you'll earn a a great living if you can get these commissions. because communities are, you know, put investing a lot, you know, the the budgets for these public sculptures that are being put around America. Um, there are a lot. I remember, I don't, I don't know who was telling me, but, you know, there's something like, if not a hundred or 200 commissions a year being produced in America for individual communities. And yes, they're, you know, the men in suits sculptures, right. The,
3: right.
2: And then, then you got the committee in the community that's kind of telling you how you need, it needs to be done. And, you know, I don't find that there's very much of a creative outlet there. Um, So this is something that I've never personally been interested in, but um, it's definitely a career choice for a sculptor who has good facility. And a lot of public monument sculpture is poorly done today because there's people who are, who are producing them, who aren't that qualified. They're, they're mediocre sculptors. And well, you mentioned Sabin
1: Howard, who's doing a huge public. Yeah. uh,
2: Yeah. Enormous yeah and it's amazing Um, yeah yeah i should come i'd like to get to new york just to go by and visit actually and i think sections of it are leaving now and being produced in bronze so yeah yeah um, i don't know how much work he's got left but um you know he's been working on that for a long time but kudos (laughs) to sabin for for doing that um yeah and he had all difficulty from what i gleaned from some of the posting he was doing about it on instagram he was having a lot of hard time with um committees that were all involved with that about you know how it needed to be in the park and what shrub can go where and what, you know <laughs> hey, i don't want to work I, I i don't and i think it was just actually how the, like the, the trees were going to be in the park like the mm-hmm. you know who was are, the, you know the The gardener, you know, was like had a voice in there. Yeah.
1: Well, he's. I Um, mean, I think he's an interesting. You know, because I think he's he's more like you. He's kind of driven by, or he has his whole career has been him driven. You know, driving himself through. You know, through his own vision for his own work. Yeah, Yeah. and he hasn't been, from what I understand, like somebody who's dealt with committees. And I, I, I think. You know, it's it's probably there's a learning curve there, but it seems like he's been able and I I think he's great at talking about his work, too. He's really passionate. And I think that he's probably, you know, because of that gift, I think he's probably able to to kind of speak to the concerns of committees in a way where he kind of pushes them aside with just his passion for his vision.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, I don't know how much you had to steam steamroll that through, but um, yeah, I would imagine it worked out. You know, I think yeah. there was a moment where there was going to be some doubts about it even moving forward. So it's moving forward and it's it's on its way to completion at this point. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think that, you know, when you when you're dealing with a committee, you got all these people with different opinions. Right. So, you know, one person's like has an idea. Well, I think it should be like this. Then the next mm-hmm. committee member saying, well, you know, they're arguing amongst amongst themselves, you know. Um,
1: well, they had so, that back you know, in the Greek times, too, right?
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, you think about like the, the Medici family defining the aesthetic of Florence and for the chosen artists of the time. You know, <laughs> I'm wondering how much met the Medicis were influencing or demanding of Michelangelo.
1: I mean, you they know. brought him in as what, like a 12 year old or 13 year old to, to live yeah. with them? Like they were definitely influencing the guy. <laughs>
2: Oh, of course they're influencing but they were you know um and they were leading reading a lot of greek literature which was like blasphemy at the time but yeah. um and you know one of his first life-size carvings was the bacchus figure which is you know um sacrilege and then he moved to rome <laughs> and started getting the i think an interesting thing about Michelangelo that not a lot of people are maybe aware of the exact timeline of the work being produced but People have been to the Bargello, have seen the Bacchus. You've seen the Bacchus head. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a funny figure. He's got this really small head. He's drunk. He's got a little bit of a weird gesture. The forms are all very kind of generic. And um it's, it's very unlike a Michelangelo sculpture that, you know, we would associate with Michelangelo. So he produced that in Florence and then soon after left for Rome, where then he was under the patronage of the Catholic Church. And his next work was this first Pietà.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: which when you think about it, and then you think about when you put those two works next to each other, what he did with that Pieta and what he did with that Bacchus is night and day. Yeah, Yeah. And there wasn't a lot of years removed from the time that he was producing these. Um, But, you know, I don't know, you know, I think Michelangelo was a bit of a tyrant and very demanding of what he felt um, he wanted to do. He didn't want to make the Sistine ceiling. But that, you know, I don't think that, um, I don't know, even though he just didn't want to do it, he just didn't want to occupy that much time in his life with painting, right? I don't think there was any other great reason. He made the most amazing thing ever. So I don't think the popes were in there going, well, can you like move that little panel over to the (laughs) right? And, you know, that looked really commanded by him as far as the creation of it. You know, I don't know how much input was being said there, so, or being, you know, set upon him as far as how he had to do it.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. How the, how the move to Rome might have affected like or shaped, you know, a a mature vision.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. The
0: the students you're getting there in, in, in Greece, are they mostly, are they Americans or are they Europeans
2: or a little mixture of both? There, there are they're no Americans actually um oh, wow. right i'm doing a 6 month course for 6 people i'm i've veered away Lucky from people. wanting to run these large programs um i want to fo- i want to have an intimate environment i mean i have more room f- in my studio for more people but 6 to me is a good number it's kind of where i started in florence in 1998 and I can talk to them for as long as I want. I can sit on the couch with them and talk to them about their thoughts about what they want to do afterwards. We just have all the time in the world when and if necessary. Um, and I've always been someone who likes to try to communicate with my students and be there for them when they have questions that don't pertain to is my pectoral right and is my neck long enough and you know this kind of thing. So, are, are you speaking? Um, are you, you know,
0: are you communicating in English?
2: Yeah. In English. So I have two students who are originally from Mexico city, but they have been living and working in Vancouver in the film industry. Uh, okay. I have one student from Syria. I have one student from Ukraine. I have, uh, one student from Portugal and I have one student from Belgium. Wow. That's so awesome. the issue is I have a group that, you know, I'm not even promoting this course. I, you know, I'm so, you know, people oh, you are, writing are now me about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, 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 way, the way that it came about is, uh, some people were writing me because my reputation as an educator has been more, you know, has always been about longer term study. Um, what I was able to do with a student in a year or two years or three years. And my whole mind about education has been rooted in developing a student over that time frame. Uh, so I had to adjust to like teaching in a two week time frame and like being, you know, trying to offer them what I can and, and on a man in a manageable way. Um, but uh, people were writing me saying, you know, I, you know, I'm not really interested in doing a one week workshop with you. Um, I'd like to do longer term study with you. And after I left Florence, I kind of swore I wasn't going to go back into this full-time teaching thing. They pulled me um, back in. <laughs> and I was getting requests and I was saying, no, 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 no. Um, and then, you know, I had a son, so I'm, I have a three-year-old at home now, but, um, oh. you know, I think that the, when I did, when I was traveling for workshops and getting up and saying goodbye to my little boy, it was hard for me. And so I said, well, geez, you know, I am getting these requests for longer term study. And I definitely would like to, cause I felt that I also learned a lot about how to deliver this education since I left Florence. And, um, So I felt I could actually get people farther faster in a six-month period than I would have been able to do in Florence. So I think I could have made great headway with them as, um, you know, amateur professional sculptors or however you'd want to term it. But, um, well, I actually felt that I could teach them to be independent of teaching in a six-month period. That's kind of my goal for the course, that they aren't going to leave here needing to have someone standing behind them telling them what to do anymore um it's a bit of a lofty goal but i you know i'm working towards that with everybody the so anyway i was getting requests to do this i was refusing them and then i stopped ignoring them because once again i think that the big thing for me as an educator you know what comes back to you as a teacher is seeing students evolve Right. So, you know, when a student starts somewhere and is having a really hard time and then three months later, they're like putting a figure together that they couldn't imagine doing three months earlier. And they're almost in tears, like yeah. because of of what they're realizing they're starting to be able to do. That to me is like, that's what I yeah. want as a teacher. Yeah. 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 So anyway so it was important for me as an educator to kind of get back into the six month course it was important to me as a father to be here in athens f- for my son and my wife um which means i did you know i was traveling a lot and i was enjoying it i was going to istanbul and i was going to london and i was going to boston and you know i was going all over these and having a great time. And I was only like accepting workshops of places I wanted to go,
3: you
2: know? so <laughs> I <was> like, yeah, <laughs> sure, I'll come to Istanbul. Class, class, okay. sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so anyway, it was giving me an opportunity to visit <laughs> interesting places and I'll still do two week workshops and I like to support some of my former colleagues out there. One of the last workshops I did was in Amsterdam. Um, and that's a school there run by a former colleague. Um, and I just want to go up there and support her, her school and, and what she's doing up there. Um, and I, you know, I, I've always, these two week workshops or one week workshops, i want to work with good, good people. So, you know, I was going to, to Boston to work with Leo mancini Joresco and his, yeah. his studio there a few times. So, you know, I want to work, I could work with good people. I could, you know, and I could go to interesting places. Um, but anyway, so I loved it until my son was born years ago.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's tough to, yeah. Yeah. You just don't want to miss stuff. But, uh, years ago, I remember, uh, chatting with you in Florence and you were talking about, um, the, an idea that you just mentioned that, uh, you love your, your, your goal as a teacher was that at the end of the year like at the very last model session that you're just sitting back, that you have nothing to say, that, that everybody is just like, doesn't need to hear any, like you have nothing left to tell anyone.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, I've been, I, I think a lot of my mind has always thought about education, not just sort of going, okay, this is what I need to tell them how to understand, but I've always thought about what's behind it, you know? Um, and there's a lot of terms, like for example, that these cliches you hear in academic training, like we're going to train your eye.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And what you think about it, I don't believe that. like you're not training <laughs> your eye. I think it's more of a training of the mind, but people just go, yeah, that sounds like an interesting solving? thing to say. yeah, I mean, it all comes it, down to that it's a it's a thought process, right? So um, your eye doesn't get sharper the more you observe a figure, right? your eyes your eyesight does not improve the more and more you look at a figure quite the um, opposite <laughs> exactly so <laughs> totally the opposite so when you take <clears throat> these things i i sit down and think about these things you know and not just take them as a a cliche that seems like a nice thing to say um right. so you know when i was when i was being able to effectively run a program in Florence because it wasn't happening maybe in the the get-go. But I was thinking about I need to have a goal for them to all work towards towards the end of the first year mm-hmm. and then decide on the assignments they need to achieve those goals. And that is the same in the second year. And that is the same in the third year. Although at the end of the third year, I don't need to be an influence in the teacher because in the first year when you're teaching a student, I think that when it when it comes to helping them achieve a the more accurate result, it's like if you as a teacher are responsible for a hundred percent of the decisions that need to be taken on that paper or on that armature, um, that's normal because they're starting. But that that percentage needs to be zero, mm-hmm. um, as they're about to leave the academy.
1: So that's their. So work. the the their whole work.
2: concept is you you have to teach people not to need you.
1: Yeah. 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 I love that. That's a hard so- thing to do though.
0: <laughs> That's a hard, cause it almost feels like, I think a lot of students, especially in the, I mean, especially in the beginning, I do think there is in that, that, Hey, what do I do now? They, it's not a laziness, but I've noticed with certain students that they, that there's this like, tell me what to do now. Tell me what to do now.
2: No, I think it's you know, well, listen, I think where that begins isn't walking up to a student work and then telling them what type of corrections they made. I've always felt that there was two ways to teach this subject. There's giving people a laundry list of corrections that they need to go and work on, and then you walk away and they've got something to do. Um, but that's just building a reliance that they have upon you. or there's actually have communicating with the student. So my critiques always start with, How are you doing? Yeah. I want to hear you think through your sculpture right now. I want to hear how, what problems that you've assessed. I never start critiquing. If a model session starts at 10 a.m., I do not critique in the first session. I give my students always a first session to sort of try to, you know, try to absorb, see, and understand what they need to work on. And then, you know, my critiques always start with, with how they're thinking through their work. And I, I need to hear where, you know, I need to get into their head. Mm-hmm. And what ends up taking place is then you're starting to hear their thought process, no matter how minuscule or, you know, off base it may be, but you're you're inside their head at that moment, then are able to adjust their thought process. Like you were just saying, Ted. Um, so what I'm always trying to do is, That's why I think in in teaching in Florence got a little bit more difficult for me because critiques, when more and more and more students were coming, you know, the time you were able allocated to give to a student just whittled down to a point where it was hard to actually have a conversation with a student. But I need to hear from the student first how they think and what they think they need to do. And then I need to talk to them after hearing that and adjust their thinking process
0: yeah well, I'm assuming the six month long um idea uh, uh, teaching schedule or teaching philosophy is changed a lot because i know when i with shorter workshops you do i do think you build you build a little bit more rely them relying on you but when you have that longer sort of uh um runway that it 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 really yeah it it can build a lot more confidence and a lot yeah. more independence.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, um, you know, so in the two week workshops, I don't, you know, I really enjoyed them. I always enjoyed the people I worked with. I've been blessed with like every single student in every single workshop I've done over these past four years has been fantastic people. Always really excited. Um, And you want to, what I say to them in the beginning is like, I can't train them as sculptors necessarily, but what I want to provide for them are better strategies that they are going to go use in their own studio. Yeah. Right. So if you can come out of this two week course, not making a complete piece, what I want, I'm always thinking about the piece that you're working on right now is to prepare you to make the next one better.
3: Right. Mm
2: -hmm. You know, and I always think that, you know, there's a mistake in the art world that or in a lot of academic training, particularly when assignments are so long, one after the other, after the other, that no one's practicing. You know, there's practicing and there's performing, you know, performing um, is trying to create a finished, resolved work. But then there's the practicing of how you need to understand how to do that better. But you think about a musician, you know, like if you're going off to play in, in a symphony, you know, you don't, or let's say a marathon runner, you know, a marathon runner doesn't practice how to run a marathon better by running a marathon every day. Yeah.
0: Right. They do smoke. You know, they small things, yeah. you do they half break it down. Every
2: day. <laughs> Yeah. Or whatever it may be. But anyone like when it's in the arts or in the sports, it's like there's this practice associated with their craft um, that I think a lot of people I encourage this to every person that studies with me is like some assignments are you need to do are about practice. You got to limit the time you're doing them. You say I'm doing something in two days. Or three days, and then you'll do projects that you're trying to perform. You're trying to resolve them, push them yeah. forward, and that has an undisclosed period of time that that might need. But the practicing is going to help you understand how to work through and resolve that piece. That's you know the work you want to make. Yeah,
0: it's like doing drills so find and soccer key. practice, and then you have a
2: game. Exactly. You know. Exactly. You know. exactly. Yeah exactly so this course is heavily rooted in that so it's six months and the first three months of it is um really rooted in these brief assignments um smaller goals not trying to resolve the works and just get used to the way in which a sculpture is constructed in parts over time Mm -hmm. um and it's working i found you know, it's the first time I'm doing this and I found that there might be a little bit like the students get a little worn out of the three day pose all the time mm-hmm. or the two day pose. And then, you know, you're still giving them something to work towards and something that they're trying to understand better how to do with these three day poses. But then they're kind of like another they know <laughs> they're throwing it away <laughs> that um, yeah. I realize that I might I might actually break it up a little bit more the next time I do it so the next term of this course is going to be longer projects so now it's their time to perform did um so anyway
1: you you mentioned the phrase or you used the phrase a few times uh drawing in space is that a specific like approach to sculpture
2: well that's what i call the process i teach that's kind of what grew out of all my time in florence right i I what is that
1: like how would you define that
2: oh gosh (laughs) <laughs> I knew I was going to get this question. Drawing space <laughs> and go. Draw, drawing space is 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 the process that I teach students how to evolve a figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot rooted in in contour. So if any painter who's ever interested in learning how to sculpt, it's like the ideal thing because they're already going to have such a strong background in in drawing and the understanding of how to develop shapes and contours. But um, I wrote a, a manual in 2003 and 2004 for the students of the Florence Academy of Art, and I titled it Drawing in Space because um, the, the specific element of the process that it was titled after is that, you know, there's one thing in getting a contour to work from one perspective, mm-hmm. but in a sculpture, it's got to work from multiple perspectives. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at a contour and you're seeing it, once again, how it's how it's working from the pelvis to the ankle on a leg, that's moving backwards and forwards from the side. Mm-hmm. Do you understand that? So the, a contour flows in multiple directions so that's drawing in space that the contours have to be understood not just from one perspective but they have to be placed well also from a secondary perspective mm-hmm. there's so that's the specific reason it was titled that mm-hmm. so i wrote that in 2004 and released it and gave it to the students in the school and it got it caught um you know people started hearing about it i started getting emails about people wanting to purchase it and then ensuing over the past over the next 15 years, I was like posting it to people, but between the time I wrote that the first time and I, and now I'm writing the second book is my, the, the process changed quite a lot, the teaching techniques and how to understand things. So I realized I needed to rewrite this because it didn't really, the first book didn't really, um, didn't really coincide with what I was teaching today. And, Mm -hmm. um, I asked a, a student of mine who's a very bright individual, um, what, would I, what should I, if I wanted to rewrite drawing in space, how how do you think I should go about that? And she just looked at me and she goes, ask me to help you. <laughs> so she became my co-author and the, her and I have been doing this together for the last five years And we're now at the very end. We're in, we've hired a production team of people who are page designers and are overseeing the development because we're self publishing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we're at the end game of this. We have one final edit to do as far as the writing goes, because we've had former colleagues, um, uh, peer review it. Mm -hmm. So we just got the peer, we got the peer reviews back from some colleagues, um, that then we'll have us now go through a final edit mm-hmm. and once that final edit's done we're we're already off and running we already got the the cover page
1: what's the title drawing in space drawing two? in space
2: drawing, <laughs> drawing in, in space. space oh yeah it's very
1: brave yeah. of you to peer
0: to get it peer reviewed you know how artists can be
2: <laughs> <laughs> well listen listen it's nece- it was necessary um there's you know this book was pretty vast um and the peer reviewer is going to—we're going to give a perspective of it that we're going to help my co-author and I. You know, when you do anything, well, there's a confidence uh, in that for so that long. I, yeah, you need yeah. another opinion.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So great. where is this going to be? Where are people going to get it?
2: Um, where are they going to get it? Okay, so that's an issue in that <laughs> we. It's confusing. I don't know if either of you have ever written a book, but I'm learning a no. lot. I'm, I'm, <laughs> and I'm never doing this again. But uh, <laughs> distribution—you um, look into how distribution works for self people who self-publish, and it's not easy um, because a lot of people are self are distributing books, but then they're actually trying to get your—they're working for for you on your behalf to get your book into bookstores. Now right. this isn't the kind of book you walk into a bookstore and go, Oh, drawing in space. Like, Oh, this <laughs> looks like an interesting Sunday read. You know, it's not, it's not this type of thing. So I'm not interested in getting the book in a bookstore. I think most, of, most the of the people are,
0: who would buy it are people who wouldn't be, who know it's for a Sunday read, right. they would want it for, they would want it for that specific reason that you're making well, it. Yeah. But what I, what I mean is. is like
2: people who so, sort of browse through bookstores looking for, you know, Right. a new book to pick up you know
1: like a beach it's not a, it's not it's a, not a romance
2: it's not a romance novel novel with
1: <laughs> it could be it could be i feel like you're <laughs> if you give it to me for peer review i'd have a few comments about
2: there's that. a nude figure in it <laughs> it's not, yeah. know, Sexy so, enough. <laughs> so we are going to be looking into distribution i mean we're going we already have the you know drawinginspace which is going to oh, be cool. the website for it so people oh, are going nice. to be able to you know, access the website, then the distribution um, that i found that seems to be more favorable is uh, is people who just actually warehouse it and then ship it. And then they have their own sort of um, software that they provide for you to to link into your website. Oh. So this is just all stuff that's so foreign to me I'm- that. Um, I'm, I'm talking with people in America and it's also about, you know, I'm trying to, I'm wanting to make this book affordable, obviously for people who are interested in it. I don't want to send it from Greece to, you know, California right. where the shipping costs and the, and customs duties may be, you know, quite costly. So I'm looking, we're looking in getting this book distributed in, in, in America and then also within Europe so that we mm-hmm. can, uh, pass on those savings to people who are, who might order it. So I think there's a lot I a think website. there's a lot
0: of avenues for that right now. It seems like yeah. there's a lot of avenues. I mean everything from look E-commerce, whether you're into it or not, it. not like yeah. like Amazon and all that. I mean you can kind of just yeah. uh, whether you're into that yeah. or not but there's a lot of different
2: places that that Well, um, Amazon's not very favorable. They take a large percentage yeah. of of, uh, of yeah. the of what you're selling. So um Yeah, it just bumps up the price, you know, so I'm trying to once again, you know, I'm I'm not an educator who's out there trying to exploit financially people. So, um, uh, you know, I think learning should be accessible to everybody. So, you know, it's uh, you know, you don't want to produce a 500 euro book and say, hey, you know, deal with it. (laughs)
0: There's going to be some distributor or like another job company listening to this right now. They're like, we can take care of that problem for Robert.
2: But like, like I said, I didn't think that there was a big advantage to a company taking 40% of the, of the profit. And then because they're contenting bookstores on my behalf. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like I said, like, you know, it's going to sit on a bookshelf for, you know, 10 years, you know? So I just think that this is going to be sold through word of mouth and sold to people who are already waiting for it. I mean, I've got a yeah. long wait list of people who have been requesting this over the years. Um. So anyway. Oh. And you know it's a niche. It's a niche market. You know, there's the sculpting world of the figurative sculpture world, as you both probably understand, is much smaller than than the figurative sculpture world. You know, there's less programs. Um, I believe GCA has a program in sculpture now. Yeah, yeah, just begun. Okay, yeah. So okay, so um, and they're springing up here and there. So it's becoming. It's like the. It, it's a little bit like where the Atelier program was for painting 20 years ago. Like There mm-hmm. weren't a lot of options for painters back then. There weren't a lot of options for sculpture sculptors five years ago, but they're, it's expanding now. It's kind of exciting yeah. to see. Lime Academy is going to be starting a sculpture program. Yeah, the right. Barcelona Academy in Spain. The Florence Academy of Art, of course. Figura in Amsterdam. Um, Laguna college is kind of rooted in figurative sculpture training as well, but that's a college program, not an atelier program. And GCA now has a a sculpture program. So, you know, and that was my big thing when I left, like, I didn't have options of where to go to study figurative sculpture. And there weren't very few people to study with and, and, you know, very few competent people to study with, you know, and so my whole sort of thing from having left graduate school is to, you know, expand, help expand that. and so you know i expanded it with training very competent sculptors and they move and go and you know not exclusively but the barcelona academy in spain has always been is directed by a former student of mine and most of the faculty not all of them have come through have were my students of the forest academy of art so anyway they're branching off now like the atelier program did and you know off opening up uh possibilities for students which is fantastic so for me the figurative sculpture world is looking very positive at this moment
0: do you think we can get a robert Bodem uh uh workshop at the gca in 2023
2: of course or 2024? you can <laughs> of course awesome. you can we gotta, we i i helped jury the like, get on club um <laughs> I helped jury the Salman Gundy club and I saw Jacob there. I've always in, enjoyed Jacob. Um, yeah. I, thought, I, feel, I feel like i have never got to spend a lot of time with him, but I feel like he's a bit of a kindred spirit. Um, yeah. In many ways. And I listen yeah. to his interviews uh-huh. um, anyway. Um, yeah. New York Academy wrote me and actually wanted me to come by and be a visiting teacher, but they're more like, Hey, you know, when you come to New York, just come by and critique our students. And I'm like, well, you know, no free lunch here,
1: you know, <laughs> know, it's like a, you'll do uh, it for uh, a free lunch yeah
2: i, don't, I just don't go yeah i just want a burger
1: that's
2: it yeah hey listen i don't even you know, need sandwich in new york city It's like 20 dollars <laughs> you know,
1: yeah but it's good it's good
0: well yeah. robert we're gonna i know your your book you got to let us know when when you do have an idea for the book or if there's any way we can help with yeah book. yeah any way possible because okay. that sounds I actually I mean you're helping to me, you right that, now <laughs> that sounds important those are the type yeah. of things that like we we all sort of need to circle the wagons not that you need need it but like circle the wagons to be like this needs to happen you know yeah. there's a lot of, of parts or or little moments in art that I think there's that 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 idea to circle the you know to 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 help everybody because i think we all benefit from something like that so to get you yeah. at some point to new york or you know if i'm ever in texas i'm in texas sometimes or a lot of times so i gotta get you out here because i'd love to take your class i'd love to sit
2: in oh, yeah? there and sculpt well, with you yeah and, if, and from b- both your backgrounds i think you know i like i said i think someone who's been painting and working from a model on a two-dimensional plane like i you know usually can get them farther faster than they might think they can.
0: Well, every time I've ever sculpted. Because it's so it's,
2: intertwined. Yeah, right?
0: but the times I have sculpted, which isn't much, I've noticed that it it helped my my painting a lot. That sort of three-dimensional yeah, I, I, way yeah. of thinking. Really, I mean, I tell so many people who ask me for advice in drawing and, and stuff that I'm like, you should sculpt because it helps you think three-dimensionally and that's kind of what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah in, I used to so teach ways. a
2: course in, in the Florence Academy of Art. I opened up a, paint, a sculpting course for painters. And yeah. I was doing that for probably a period of five years. And it was like a night course, two days a week. And everyone that took it, they all said to me how much it helped their painting. Yeah, and then when students sure. would come from the painting program and want to talk to me about doing it, you know, I couldn't tell them how. I said, listen, I'm just going to teach you sculpting, how it's going to help your painting. I can't say. Um, Yeah. But I know that the terminology and what you're getting used to in learning on a two dimensional plane um, is going to translate quite quickly into a three dimensional plane. I always think the big stumbling block is actually managing clay. You know, clay is not an easy medium to learn how to control. It's like a technical
0: um,
3: thing. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so it's like you know I have very specific ways in which I ask people to, c- to kind of control clay, but if your if your listeners out there are interested in in um, looking at this book when it's finally released, they can they can uh, send me an email and I'll put them on my studio newsletter and that would be great. Um, if that's going to be in the information when you release this podcast, um, and I can put them on. Yeah, my we'll newsletter put it or all out there. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll or they'll receive information on when it's being released and stuff like that so
1: yeah cool definitely
0: that'd be super good and my and my dream and my hope at some point when i see all those uh buildings and stuff going up is that there's more sculptures and freezes and everything robbotoms in, in those Rob, well
2: you know what we, need, in what, the lobby. Okay, what we need <laughs> is less committees and you know less we, need the Medici, we need the medicis back in defi- the coming to decide well more I don't faith. Know.
1: We we have the Medici. They they're not so great right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They, don't, they don't really
2: support That's our That's but, <laughs> but if you think about it there were just one person on the committee, right? <laughs> That's true. Support like supporting the arts, just one person. Like I want Florence to look like this. Getting to yeah. work, boys. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right,
0: Rob. That was amazing. Thank you so much yeah. for coming on. It's great to uh, see my, you again.
2: My pleasure. I was I was very happy when you um, asked me to do this, and was been looking forward to it. Um, for weeks and weeks that we were (laughs) not able to do it
1: (laughs) it's Ted's fault. um sorry it was inconvenient that my mom was in the hospital oh
0: (laughs) jeez
2: and the covid (laughs) and covid and the covid um (laughs) i
0: hope at some point because i make my way every it's been years but every once in a while i make my way out to montenegro or something like that i'd love to pop down to to Greece yeah. and visit you. That would be amazing for me. So. Uh, oh,
2: definitely. Listen, both of you, Ted, I don't know how much you travel anymore or if you're allowed to. Travel more or, than <laughs> all of us. <laughs> how He's old are your children Croatia. now?
1: 13 and it, 10.
2: Okay. So uh, maybe, yeah. That, it's that, easier they, to
1: get around, but they have to come with.
2: <laughs> okay. They always want to go.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you can't, you, you, yeah, they're, they're at that awkward age where they don't want to be left home alone yet, but they, uh, you know,
0: not quite latchkey kids, but soon we're, they'll be there. We're soon. almost
1: there.
2: <laughs> okay, good.
1: Uh, let's off. all meet up at uh, at Coda and go watch MotoGP.
2: Oh, at Coda?
1: Yeah, in uh, Austin, Mugello? Texas. No, 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 Coda. Ah, hey, of the Americas.
0: No, we were we were talking mm-hmm. about this. Uh, I think next year Ted and I are going to try to meet up. Uh, he's going to come down to Austin, and we're going to try to uh, do MotoGP in in Texas. So if you have a wild hair and you come out to the States and let's go see some MotoGP in Austin.
2: Yeah. I, I just, if I'm going to go see the MotoGP, it seems to have to be at the Mugello. All right. I used to I'll meet to up the, at Mugello. Yeah. Let's okay. do it. I used to go out to the Mugello and watch. I have a friend Tiziano who had a, he, there was track day there. Yeah. Yeah. And Hunter, you, you know, you know, Hunter Eddie. Yeah. Hunter, Hunter, Eddie e- Hunter Eddie used to go out there on track day. And my friend Tiziano used to go out there and watch them. Like I was too scared to even bother getting out on the track <laughs> myself.
3: But, yeah.
2: You know, I've never been a sporty <clears throat> motorcycle driver, even though I've always <laughs> driven a motorcycle. But they—they um, well, they take things to a different level. You know, yeah. it's crazy. Well, like, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, like I like my, I, my I, knee
0: i'm throwing it i'm throwing it out there we're gonna we, we okay. only planned on trying to meet up in in austin to go see the the moto
1: gp next year
2: i didn't even know there was one in austin yeah yeah i yeah. thought it was there was just one in california at the no they moved it they closed laguna that's seca.
1: a laguna seca but they they can't do it there anymore so uh really yeah the the i think the track's too small because the bikes are too oh, powerful wow. now uh also i think the bigger corners to longer straights Yeah. wow <laughs>
2: I didn't know that. Interesting. So,
1: um, all right. Just yeah, a wealth of there. knowledge on motorcycles. <laughs> okay, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> right,
2: listen, well, I well, look well, forward so to much, any, any time that I can see you guys in the future, one-on-one and yeah, sit down and have that. a meal and whatever. I look forward that to it. That would be amazing. Yes. Yeah. Congratulations Weather on tyranny. the school,
1: on the book, on the sun, on everything. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. Thank you very much. It's all very nice.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's a yeah. lot of change. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, all uh, right. Well, just great, great talking. Thanks.
2: Okay. Right, we'll covered. talk. Well, let, let me know when this is coming out so I can, you know, promote it or whatever, you know, absolutely. you yeah. put on social media. Robert, okay, guys, so, thank you. I'm out of here. I'm going to go All home right. and see my son and my wife. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Ciao. ciao, ciao. Okay, bye. Ciao, ciao. Ciao.